read something I read as I was concluding last week as I lead into this week's message. I talked about how Yeshua gave what he said was the second greatest commandment, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And I said that it was a two-edged sword of sorts because loving your neighbor and loving yourself, if you don't love, appreciate, or value you, then loving your neighbor as much as you love yourself becomes kind of meaningless and to some extent it's impossible to do. I follow that up with by saying, I think humility is more about how we think of and treat other people, their value, their worth, the respect that they deserve. Some people may not have accomplished the same things or as much as we have, money, education, social status, and it runs the gamut. But everyone is entitled to a certain amount of dignity. Many people hear the word mitzvah, and they think of it as being synonymous with doing a good deed. According to Jewish tradition, there's this understanding that the term mitzvah means God-given commandments, which then becomes a sacred responsibility. A God-given commandment. Hmm. Okay, based on these traditions, we all know there have been 613 mitzvot that have been extracted from the words of Torah. Everything from the very first commandment, chronologically, which according to Maimonides is actually ranked number 202, In the first part of Genesis 1, verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So from that one all the way to some sort of obscure ones, actually one is found in our portion today, which Maimonides ranks at number 405. It comes from chapter 22, verse 11 of Deuteronomy. You are not to wear a woven mixture, wool and linen together. So of the 613 commandments, there are some that deal with ethical issues. There are some that deal with rituals. Some of them are positive. Some of them are negative. There are some that depend on the ancient sacrificial observances, which, of course, we cannot observe now because we don't have a temple. And there are even those that can only be followed by those that are living in the land of Israel. So us here in the United States, we can't possibly follow some of those commandments. Genesis has the fewest number of commandments. Exodus includes the commandments to observe Pesach, uh, Shabbat, not to oppress, oppress the stranger. Leviticus includes the laws of keeping kosher and the, the ones that have to do with animal sacrifice. Numbers talks about the wearing of tzitzit. In Deuteronomy, talks about charity, and we get introduced to the Shema, which incidentally I forgot to put the banner up today. 
Now, in the entire book of Deuteronomy, there are over 200 of the 613. So that's almost a third of all of them. This week's portion, Kitetse, alone, it has over 70 of the mitzvot. There's some pretty interesting commands in here, if you read it, and I'm going to point a few of them out. For example, earlier, earlier we read in Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21, suppose a man has a ben sorer umore, a stubborn and rebellious son, who does not listen to the voice of his father or mother. They discipline him, but he does not listen to them. Then his father and mother are to grab hold of him and take him, bring him out to the elders of his city, to the gate of his place. They will say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is sorer umore, stubborn and rebellious. He does not listen to our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city are to stone him with stones to death. So you will purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear and be afraid. That brings to mind chapter 21 of Exodus, verse 17 which says, whoever curses his father or his mother must surely be put to death. So let me ask you this. Does that apply here in Deuteronomy 21? Does this actually rise to the level of cursing his father or his mother? Well, personally, I don't think so. And guess what? The rabbis must have agreed with me. So it puts me in pretty good company. Because this passage actually became a famous legal case known as, get, you ready for this? The Ben Sorer Umore, the stubborn and rebellious son. Any of us who have raised teenagers know just how rebellious they can be. But think of this, even though you know and you've experienced rebellious teenagers, we would probably never consider resorting to that solution of stoning him to death. You notice the tense, it is a masculine form. It is a ben. It says the son. It doesn't say anything about what to do with the girls. Now, we may have had brief thoughts of doing something like this, but we never would have followed through with it. For one thing, it's, it would be illegal in our country to stone our child to death. So, again, the rabbis didn't think it was worthy of the death penalty. And they apparently didn't want the case of the Ben Sorer Umare to become part of halakha, which is Jewish law. So what did they do? They simply interpreted it out of existence. Interesting. Just by interpretation, it doesn't exist. So how did they do that? Well, in Hebrew, the word for voice used in this passage is kol, which is singular. So in Hebrew, the rabbis came to the understanding that both the father and the mother could not possibly speak in one voice. They may agree, but they can't speak with the same voice. Obviously, they have different voices. So they concluded 
that since a father and a mother couldn't possibly speak with one voice, the Ben Sorer Umared didn't exist anymore. Something else we can learn from this case of the Ben Sorer Umare, the stubborn and rebellious son. The rabbis say that a father and a mother won't respond in the same voice. They think differently. They have different perspectives and different ways of how they each react and respond in raising their children. Again, anybody that's raised teenagers, you know, mothers, you didn't always agree with your husband. Fathers, you didn't always agree with your wife when it came to raising your children. Even, the, even now that your children are grown and out of the house, you still don't agree on everything. So the rabbis said it no longer exists. It's as if it wasn't ever there. I've said, I believe it was last year or the year before, that we actually never see this death sentence being carried out for that purpose. And this is why. For one reason, because the rabbi said, we can't do that. There's some other interesting commands we find in this parasha. In this 22nd chapter of Deuteronomy, the first four verses says, you are not to watch your brother's ox or sheep going astray and ignore them. You must certainly bring them back to your brother. If your brother is not near you or you do not know him, then you are to bring it into your house and it will remain with you until your brother comes searching for it and you return it to him. You do the same thing with his donkey or his coat or anything lost by your neighbor. That may be lost by him and you find. You may not ignore them. You must not watch your brother's donkey or ox fall on the ground, on the road, and ignore it. You must certainly help him lift it up again. Well, how many of us have neighbors or, or, or brothers that have a donkey or an ox? But I can go one step further with this. You see someone who's not necessarily very close to you with his car broken down on the road. If you go by this scripture, you would stop and help. You wouldn't just drive by and say, oh, I don't see this. I don't like him anyway. He doesn't like me. We have a responsibility for one another. How about this one in verses 6 and 7? If there happens to be a bird's nest in front of you along the road, in any tree or on the ground, with young ones or eggs, and the hen sitting on the young one or on the eggs, you are not to take the hen with the young. You must certainly let, her, let the hen go, but the young you may take for yourself, so that it may be, go well with you and you may prolong your days. The rabbis actually say that if the, the mother bird is still sitting on the nest, you're supposed to actually physically chase her away so that you can get to the eggs. You're not to take the eggs while she is still there in the nest. Or how about this one? Chapter 24, beginning of verse 19. When you reap your harvest in the field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you're not to turn back to get it. It is for the outsider, for the orphan, and for the widow, in order that Adonai, your God, may bless you in all the work of your hands. 
When you beat your olive tree, you are not to search through the branches afterwards. It is for the the outsider, the orphan, and the widow. When you harvest your vineyard, you are not to pick over it afterward. It is for the outsider, for the orphan, and the widow. You are to remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. For the next couple of minutes, I want to focus on chapter 22, verse 8. When you build a new house, you are to make a guardrail for your roof so that you do not bring the guilt of blood on your house if anyone falls from it. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm going to say from my, from my point of view, in my neighborhood, there are no homes that have roofs that people can hang out on and, and sit around that could possibly fall off of. I would say about 90% of the roofs in my neighborhood are sloped. only way up is with a ladder. There's no way to get up there any other way. There are a few that have balconies, but for the most part, we don't have roofs today that are flat that people can get up on top of and actually sit around and fellowship, watch TV, whatever. So it's a little hard for me to understand, but yet I do understand it. So why a guardrail? Why would it apply to me? See, some of us now, we have fences around our homes. But we usually build fences for privacy and not necessarily for our protection. We build them to keep neighbors and passerbys out as well as to protect them from harm if they did come in. Scripturally speaking, our character should be that each of us is responsible for our neighbors. I just quoted it a few minutes ago. Yeshua said, love your neighbor as yourself. So the guardrail can be compared to fences around swimming pools, for those who have swimming pools or live in communities that have swimming pools. So we have a fence around it because we actually have a responsibility to safeguard our neighbors. It's also there to keep children from falling in the pool, But again, it's about safeguarding. Sometimes we tend to focus on our rights, our rights to privacy. And sometimes to the extent of keeping ourselves shielded from our neighbors. But Scripture tells us we should never show indifference to our neighbors. We're supposed to be safeguarding them. We're supposed to be loving them like ourselves. We're supposed to be showing the love of Yeshua to our neighbors. The entire Torah is built around an idea. That idea is that we are responsible for others. We're responsible for each other. It's not designed around our personal rights and privileges. It's always how we react and act towards others. It's built around our duties and our obligations, especially when it comes to our relationships with our neighbors. 
Rabbi Josh Brumbach says, the point of kitetse is relationships, and specifically how to conduct ourselves in relation to one another. This is the essence of holiness. For God takes this matter seriously. The Torah repeatedly instructs us on our relationships, both with God and others. He concludes by saying, Yeshua further clarified the importance of our relationships and that nothing is greater than our relationship with God and with each other. He says, may we, with God's help, demonstrate love and concern for those around us, seeing within our fellow human beings a reflection of the divine image. I'm going to read that again. May we, with God's help, demonstrate love and concern for those around us, seeing within our fellow human beings a reflection of the divine image. If we're going to represent God, if we're going to represent Yeshua to our friends, our neighbors, our relatives, do you not think it's important to, first of all, know what he is, who he is, know that he's a loving God, and then show that image to others? I think that's what our purpose is. We're supposed to show the love of God. In conclusion, and I'm not going to do a, uh, an Apostle Paul and continue for another 10 minutes, 20 minutes. This is actually the conclusion. Even though the ability or even the desire for anyone to keep all 613 commandments is not possible today, it doesn't change its intent. The point remains the same. Our neighbors should not be ignored or disrespected. Building fences shouldn't be about keeping our lives to ourselves and shielding ourselves from our neighbors. They need to be about our responsibility to protect others. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we thank you for this great responsibility that you've put upon us to love one another, to love our neighbor as ourself, to safeguard our neighbors, because that is holiness. That's how we show your love for one another, that we care for them. I pray that we would all understand and come to know that it's not about segregation, it's not about separating ourselves from the world, but it's taking you to the world, showing the world who you are, and they can, that they would ask us the question, how do I become a follower of Yeshua? What do I need to do? And give us the answers, Lord. Give us the boldness to stand up and say what you have already said, that you sent your Son your only son who you loved, into the world, that the world may be saved. Thank you for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy that you show us each and every day. Thank you for this season that we're in right now as we're looking inside ourselves and seeing where we have fallen short in this past year, that we may stand before your throne knowing that we are written 
in your book of life. In Yeshua's name.